Have you ever watched a royal event? Admittedly, I've gotten up early a few times in my life and caught a wedding, uh, a coronation, uh, and even a funeral before. And if you've ever peered in through the television of what goes on across the pond, you know that it's full of glitz and glamour, pomp, and circumstance. For example, in 1937, the coronation of King George VI was quite glorious. This kingly procession was over six miles long. Over 32,000 soldiers, 22,000 police officers, robes and crowns and oaths and choirs, the whole shebang. In one sense, the arrival of the newborn king is quite the opposite. As we see earlier on in this second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, conveys the humility of Christ. Christ was born in a stable. He decided that his crib would be where the animals would eat. The son of David, the Messiah, Emmanuel, chose specifically this entrance into the world. He chose the smallest, most underwhelming gate to enter into this world. In fact, a gate so small that it needed heralding angels to tell creation where he was. Beloved, the incarnation of God's son amidst the animal feed, amidst the manger, should confront our glory-seeking hearts immediately. Matthew Henry said, he well knew how unwilling we are to be meanly lodged, clothed, or fed, how we desire to have our children decorated and indulged, how apt the poor are to envy the rich, and how prone the rich are to disdain the poor. But when we by faith view the Son of God being made man and laying in a manger, our vanity, ambition, our envy are checked. We cannot, with this object rightly before us, seek great things for ourselves and for our children. Beloved, the humiliation of Christ and his birth confronts us. But I want us to see also in another sense, as this announcement that we're going to look at today goes forward, it is in fact more glorious than any kingly procession that has happened within humanity. Yes, in all humility, Christ put on flesh and veiled his glory by human flesh because he knew that humanity with God was not something that we could grasp. But I want us to see today that this first announcement, this, this first arrival, this first news that we get to hear is also a glimpse into profound weighted glory that we get to see about the birth of this son. This announcement was not the normal announcement of a king. It was the private announcement that was done in the middle of the night. And it was quite peculiar, primarily because of who God chose to deliver the news to first. Poor shepherds whose names we don't even know. And the message that these were shepherds received long ago is the message that we proclaim today and that we still receive today. The exact same message. The driving question for our text is simply this, 
Why is Christ's birth announcement to the shepherds so profoundly wonderful? Why is Christ's birth announcement to the shepherds so profoundly wonderful? The text today is going to answer that question in three ways. And the first answer to the question is found in verses 8 through 12. Because it teaches that lowly sinners are first entrusted with the glorious news. And that's good news for us. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. As one commentator said, as I saw this week, these shepherds represent all of humanity. And what he means by that is these shepherds receive first the glorious revelation of the birth of Christ. And as we saw in the text we just read, this news is meant for all of us. And here we are 2,000 years later receiving the same news that those shepherds did long ago. Now, we must admit that these shepherds were strategically chosen by God to receive this news because God always acts according to holy and divine purposes. And so we we must realize that today. He did not choose kings. He did not choose a high priest or president or some valiant warrior that had a name for himself. No, he delivered this message of most importance to shepherds. Now, theologically, we know there's motifs throughout the scriptures regarding shepherds. In fact, some of the great personalities in the Bible were themselves shepherds. We see this dating back all the way to the beginning of Genesis. Abel and Abraham, Lot, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that Jacob's 12 sons were shepherds in Genesis chapter 37. We see that God trains up men to first shepherd sheep before he entrusts them with the shepherding of his people. And I'm referring to both David and Moses. We see, and we've talked about, how pastors have the responsibility of shepherding sheep. We saw this in our study of 1 Peter chapter 5. Most profoundly, of course, we see that there is a good shepherd who shepherds all of his sheep. And this shepherd was promised in Ezekiel 34. There's bad shepherds who care only for themselves, and then there's a good shepherd. So shepherding is a part of the story of the scriptures, but who specifically were these shepherds? Because there's not exactly a lot disclosed of them. Well, we know from the text there in verse 8 that they're from the same region, meaning they're from the same region as to where Christ was born, which is Bethlehem. Uh, and so they would have been outside of the city shepherding these sheep. Phil Riken, who's a theologian, suggests that perhaps these shepherds were shepherding in the very fields that King David was shepherding. And considering David himself was from Bethlehem. In the Hebrew Mishnah, which is a Hebrew resource, it was said that these sheep, or excuse me, these shepherds in Bethlehem would tend to the sheep who would be sacrificed in the temple. So it's quite possible, quite possible that these shepherds here were shepherding sheep that would one day be sacrificed for the atoning sin of some of the brothers and sisters throughout Israel. 
We know that they're diligent in their work because they were keeping watch over their flock by night, meaning that they were taking uh, turns sleeping and protecting the flock, uh, waiting to see if a predator would come, and their responsibility was to stand between the predator and the sheep. We also know that these men are of humble origin. As I already mentioned, we don't even know their name. Uh, we know Caesar Augustus's name, whose name is mentioned in verse 1. He tells the world where to go and what to do through a, a census he has ordered. But these shepherds are merely trying to keep their flocks alive by night. Another Hebrew resource, the, the Talmud, suggests that these shepherds weren't even valued in the society that they came from. Uh, because they dealt with sheep, it's quite possible that they were unclean and kept from participating in the ceremonial law. Uh, they were not honored in their community. It's quite possible that their testimonies would not even stand up in a court of law. These were outcasts. These were not the finest in the land that people flocked to, no pun intended, to go and to seek wisdom or leadership. But beloved, I want us to remember that the things that pertain to the kingdom of God are often hidden from those who are great. Caesar Augustus does not receive this revelation. Caiaphas, who's the high priest of Israel at the time, did not receive the revelation. But it was meant for the poor in spirit. For the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God, as Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5. God chooses to work through human weakness that appears foolish to the world, but in fact shows his great power and glory and purposes. So this message fits right inside of this little story here. We see that a messenger is sent to them. Look there in verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Can you imagine the moment for a second as you're, as you're listening? When the fullness of time had come, just as Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, God gathers the host of angels in the throne room. A myriad of myriad, as we, as we just learned in Revelation 5. And he selects an angel, one of them, to go and to deliver the good news to humanity. And that's where we see an angel of the Lord appeared to the outcast, to the lowly. We don't know if it's Gabriel. Gabriel's already been mentioned twice in the book of Luke. He is the one who delivered the message both to Mary and to Zechariah. But there is something different about those messages because look what it says there. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord is not mentioned in those other message deliveries. But here it is mentioned. In the pitch black darkness of night, the Shekinah glory of God shows up. No wonder they're filled with great fear. They're looking for a wolf. And all of a sudden, the Shekinah glory shows up. And they realize that their staff has limits. And this is the message of the messenger. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not means to listen up, hark. We know that term. We're about to sing it here at the end of the sermon. 
Listen, and this is what the angel says. For I bring you good news of great joy. Here's what the angel is saying. For I bring you the gospel of great joy. And it's for you, the lowly and the outcast. Verse 11, he gets to the center of this good news. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. For it was this day, as verse 11 tells us, that the child was born in the city of David. And I don't want to pass over that too quickly because we know, as we've already talked about in the study in the month of December, that this ruler would come from the line of David, as was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he would be born in the city of David, as we talked about last week in Micah chapter 5. And now these lowly men, these men who are just trying to stay awake and do their job, have just been delivered the most glorious and highest doctrine there is. It is gifted to them. It is given to them. This is the only time in the gospel accounts that all three of these names are used together. Savior, Christ, Lord. Now, Savior would be a title that the shepherds would have known. Several places, many places, in fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see that God ultimately is the Savior of his people. We see this in places like Isaiah 43, Isaiah 45, many other places. But we also see in places like Nehemiah 9 that God uses human agents to help save the people from uh, um, difficult and dangerous things that are surrounding them. But it's God who always gets the title of Savior. So this announcement that a Savior has come is very significant. Now, no doubt the shepherds did not understand the full weight of this one's saving, but they would have understand that the Savior came to save them because they're the ones who are receiving the news. And we know that they believe that this Savior was born a human because the message says, for unto you is born this day, making him a man. But he's also divine because he gives him the title Savior, Christ and Lord. Christ, that title, is the same as Messiah in Hebrew. He is the long-awaited, promised, anointed one of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that there are three posts or offices that are anointed by God. It's the, prof- it's the offices of prophet, those who proclaim God's word, 1 Kings 19. That's the office of priest, those who intercede and pray for the people of God. That's Exodus 29. And those who are kings, who implement his word through an edict that they have in their governing. And these, this is the anointed one. These are the anointed ones of Israel who intercede and who minister and who serve Israel as mediators before the Christ came. So when the angel gives the title Christ, he is saying that this is the ultimate anointed one. He is the epitome and the fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king. So he is giving him a heavy title as he delivers this message 
to the angels. He also names him Lord. Now, oftentimes with these titles, we, we sometimes think about these titles not very deeply. We're just familiar with these titles. But these shepherds would have understood the title of Lord because it was Caesar Augustus who made the whole world call him Lord. So when the angel says, this one is the Lord, it means that a new ruler has come, one who is going to save and one who is anointed by God to fulfill the offices between God and humanity. And beloved, this is what the angel says is the good news. This is the good news delivered to sinful humanity and it sparks within us great joy. Beloved, this Jesus saves his people from their sins. From, from their greatest enemy, death. He is the long-awaited Messiah. They're not even thinking about it that night. And it shows up in the fields outside of Bethlehem, this wonderful and glorious news. So the angel gives the shepherd the gospel, and then they give this glorious identity of the child that has been born. It's quite remarkable when we sit and we ponder on it and we let the truths of it seep into our mind and heart rather than moving from it quickly. Beloved, this is a simple reminder to all of us in the room that you are not the Messiah. You are not the Christ. You are not the Lord. You can't fulfill any of these offices and neither can I. Christ fulfills all of these offices perfectly. And he comes to save a people who desperately needs saving because that is what is implied here. A savior implies saving. So he gives the message to a people who need to be saved. We desperately need the one who has come to save. We need to be confronted with the reality that all of us need saving, as we've already prayed today. This is the human condition that every single person ever born of man is facing. There's bad news first. You need saving. There's good news that comes. A savior has been born, Christ the Lord. A couple of takeaways from this little first point. I don't want us to miss the fact that these were shepherds. These were the poor. Beloved, do not despise the poor. Do not think little of them. For those who turn and trust in Christ, theirs is the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, they will be first. We need to be confronted with that very quickly. Because if we're honest, parents, don't you want your child to achieve the most? To get the most out of his life or her life? We want to teach them to be meek and mild, recognizing that they are sinners. I also want us to see the importance of right doctrine. This angel comes and he delivers right doctrine very clearly, plainly, powerfully. That is the, the ministry of the church is to handle the right doctrine just as this angel did and to deliver it to people who need to hear the right doctrine. So we want to be faithful in doing just that. So often this, these doctrines we find so common today, 
just a reminder for us that these, these doctrines are the things that angels long to look into. This is what we taught in 1 Peter chapter 1. We see in Ephesians chapter 3 that it's through the church, starting with the delivery of the, of the shepherds in the church as it progresses in time, is the manifold wisdom of God to teach the heavenly authorities in the heavenly realms what the plan of redemption is. So can you imagine being the angel who delivers this good news? What a privilege. And the angel then tells the shepherds a sign there in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. A baby. The most defenseless of creatures. He's wearing swaddling cloths. And this is a sign that the angel gives. And he has to give them a sign or they're not going to be looking for this son in a manger. These shepherds would have known what a manger is. This is where the lambs sleep at night. This is where the lambs stay. But this time they're looking for a lamb in a manger who is not wearing wool, but he's wearing cloth. And this is the sign that God gives to them. And this is how you will know who Messiah, Lord, and Savior is. You can find him where the lambs are kept. We see in John chapter 1 that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is, else is Christ's birth announcement to the shepherds so profoundly wonderful? Well, we're going to look at our second answer there in verses 13 and 14. Because it teaches lowly sinners that Christ is the highest glory of God. Because it teaches lowly sinners that Christ is the highest glory of God. Look what happens, right, as this announcement and the sign is given. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with, an angel, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Beloved, consider for a second that these angels are praising God sheerly because of who he is. These angels are sinless beings. We often praise God because of what God has done for us. They're praising God simply for who he is. In verse 14, these angels sing a hymn together. Look what it says there. Glory to God in the highest, they say. What a profound statement. What is the highest degree of glory to God? That's a good question that the text kind of beckons us to ask. That highest degree, here, here's simply what that means. It, it means the most glorious condition. It means the most exalted state. So they're saying glory to God in the highest. This is the highest exaltation of God is what they are saying. And what is that? Well, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. They're telling us with this birth announcement that God is most glorified through the Son. How is he glorified? How is, how is God glorified through his son? Through this amazing, miraculous virgin birth. Through the sinless life that he led. For the fact that he died on the cross to atone for sin, for, uh, for sinful man. And that he was buried and then he raised out of the grave, conquering death forever. 
And then he ascended to the right hand of the glory of God, and he is coming back to gather us to himself. This glorifies God, and Jesus is the only one who can do these things. And God is glorified because they reveal in Jesus' life the attributes of God. His holiness, his justice, his mercy, his wisdom, his power, his love, his patience. Jesus demonstrates all of this. And so when the announcement comes to these lowly shepherds that God is going to be glorified in the highest through this announcement, he's teaching them that this is the, the ultimate way that God is glorified is through the birth of this little baby profound. J.C. Ryle said that the creation glorify, or God is glorified in creation, but not as much as redemption. We see that this baby came to die, and we'll talk about that here momentarily. But now that God is glorified highest through his son, what becomes of man? Will the angels sing of that as well? Peace, they say. Peace that passes all human understanding has now been provided, as was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, through the Prince of Peace. There is now peace between a holy God and sinful shepherds. There is now peace between a holy God and sinful members of First Irving. Because the Son has come. We see that the shedding of this son's blood was for sinful men, and by his shedding, peace was made through the blood of his cross. We talk about this often. It's in Colossians chapter 1. What we have to recognize, the reason this is good news of great joy is because we in our sinful condition need a Savior. We need a Savior, and Jesus is the perfect Savior. And Jesus, as we will one day, or as the scriptures will, will unfold, is also the perfect sacrifice. Well, how so? Well, he's fully human. That means he's, he's qualified by his human nature to serve as the substitute offering for our sin for those of us who have broken the law of God. All of us have been born into sin. All of us have, have sinned, the scriptures talk about. And the wage of sin, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, is death. And what we see in Jesus is a perfect humanity. He's the sinless, spotless one. He had no sin, and therefore he perfectly obeyed the law while he was in the flesh. With sin, God required the shedding of innocent blood. We, we see this established all the way back in the Torah, all the way back in the law. Human blood will not suffice for the toning of sins. That's why Isaac wasn't sacrificed. Yes, to test the faith of Abraham, but Isaac's blood is not worthy of a sacrifice. So God institutes temporarily animals who are sinless, though not man and not God, to serve as the sacrifice temporarily. But their blood doesn't suffice for human blood because they're not human. 
for human sin because they're not, they're not us. So he had to be born under the law, born of woman. And he fulfilled the requirements perfectly. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And yet he was also fully God, holy, spotless, creator, able to stand between God and man as both the perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Beloved, if we don't understand this about the gospel, we don't understand the good news. We don't understand why we need a savior. If we can get here, we'll understand the need for a savior, that our sin needs to be atoned for, and God has made provision through his own son who is the savior. This is the good news, beloved. For our response today, I want us to actually consider the faith-filled responses of those who are involved in the text. And that's where our third answer comes from today. Why is Christ's birth announcement to the shepherds so important? Well, beloved, because it teaches us, lowly sinners, how to faithfully respond to the glorious news of Christ. I want us to see how the shepherds and how Mary respond to this glorious news that a son has been given and has been born. Look with me there in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Drop with me in verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Beloved, here's the, re here's the reality. In this section, I just want us, by God's grace and through his spirit, to respond the same way that these shepherds do. Look how they respond in verse 15. It says, let us go over to Bethlehem and see that this thing has happened. They, first and foremost, they trusted the word of God, the very word that had come from the throne room of heaven had come to them and they believed it. They believed it. They trusted the message. Have you trusted the message as it has been delivered to you? Have you trusted that there is a savior that has been, been given and that you need saving? Verse 16, look what it says. It says, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. They acted upon it. They responded immediately. They sprinted. Mary did the very same thing when she found out she was going to bear the Son of God. She ran to Elizabeth. The shepherds do the same. They want to lay hold of the promise that God has given to them. They recognize that this message that they're receiving could not and should not be delayed in their response. So they went and they took possession of it. That note, as our, we talked about a few weeks ago, they're not going to see Mary. They're going to get their eyes on the Savior. They're going to see the fulfillment of the promises of God for themselves. Beloved, do you seek the one that the word points to like they did? Do you wake up in the morning running with haste 
to meet Messiah, to meet the Christ? Or do you wake up and it's just another day, another day in the pasture, another day with the sheep? Or do you run and see the lamb's face through the scriptures? We see in verse 16 also that they responded as those who knew they needed saving. They knew they needed saving. If they didn't think they needed saving, they probably would have stayed put. But they ran, and that displays humility. They left their sheep. They left their livelihood. They left their security. Because they knew that their greatest problem was not the need for a paycheck, but it was their need for a savior. They knew that they were not put on this earth just to steward potentially sacrifices for the temple, but to steward the message of the one who came and said that he is both the temple and the sacrifice. They recognized that they needed saving. So they departed from what they found is valuable to lay hold of what was more valuable. Are you willing to abandon your life for a savior who is more valuable? But he, he abandoned the throne of heaven to come to you. He, he loved you first, as First John writes. Verse 18, we see that they evangelized others who needed the Savior, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So, so they go and they see the Messiah, and then they made the news known. They told them what they had heard from the angels. They are, in fact, the first evangelists that we know of from the scriptures. They're the first to hear of the good news. They're some of the very first to get their eyes on the Lord Jesus himself, and they're the first to tell the world about it. They didn't just hear it. They went, they put their foot forward, and they told other people who also needed saving that a Savior had come. Because look what it says in 18. The people marveled at what they were saying. Beloved, we think of evangelism as a fearful thing. But when we come face to face with the living God and the morning star has risen in our hearts and we recognize that he is the only savior for all of humanity, then our joy in sharing that news with other people increases tenfold. We recognize that the message has come to us. Oh, I pray that we're a people that don't just hear the word, but we do the word. We preach the word. We proclaim the word. And look what it says there in verse 20. It says that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen, for all that they had heard. They returned to their flocks, their ordinary lives, but now changed with extraordinary truth. And they were glorifying God and they were praising God. They knew the weight of the message that they had received. They told others about it, and they praised the one who had delivered it. Beloved, when you come face to face with the risen Lord, certainly by faith now, one day by sight, your life cannot be the same. It will not be the same by God's great mercy. He changes the heart. He, he, he gives you a new heart. He regenerates your mind. 
and your heart. And, and he gives you new affections for him. And when we come in contact with this need to be saved, and then the one who actually saves, then our response is glorifying the one who receives and is worthy of all glory. And we praise his name. So we don't just sing. We praise him. We glorify him. We bless him with our hearts because of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is remarkable to me is still today God commands lowly, common, ordinary people like me and like you to speak forward this extraordinary truth. It's still the same, still the same method of the, of, the shape, of the shepherds. They interact with the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and then they go tell people about it. Beloved, we are called to do the very same. Quickly, I want us to see Mary's response there in verse 19. Jump back up with me. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So she heard what the shepherds were saying. Treasure up means to protect these words in her mind. She wanted to keep these words. She wanted to guard these words from escaping her mind. And closely related is pondering. In order to not let these truths escape her mind, she's ruminating over them. That's what pondering means. Like a pig that's getting roasted over the fire, just hitting that flame slowly and surely. Over and over again, being so closely knitted with what has just been delivered to her. How often do you mull over these truths? Maybe a better question is, what does her example teach us about true faith? How do we guard? How do we ponder? How do we not grow old of these things? A warning to the church in Revelation, you, you left your first love, Paul writes. Our first love is right here. His name is Jesus. The angel's announcement proved to be reliable. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 1 says that after Jesus making purifications for sin, he is the one that sat down at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the majesty on high is what the writer of Hebrews says. He's far superior than the angels. Far more glorious than the angels. He's veiled in flesh in this scene. But the glorious ones that are portraying the glory of God to these shepherds, they're rejoicing at the news of this one. He Hebrews chapter 2 says that he was made a little while lower than the angels before he went and sat at the majesty on high's right hand. He is the one who is worthy of glory and praise and honor. For a time, he put on flesh and his glory was veiled. But do you know why he put on flesh? To save us from our sins. Matthew chapter one, verse 21. And he saves us profoundly. He, he, beloved, he saves us from the penalty of sin by taking on our sin in his flesh. When, 
It says in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned my sin and your sin in the flesh when the, the flesh of Christ was ripped and the blood of Christ was poured out. And in that moment, the, the penalty that you and I deserve for all of eternity was taken care of. And we are saved from a punishment that I hope we never get over. But he also saves us from the power of sin. Romans 6 says that sin might be brought to nothing in our lives while we wait for him in the second coming. He didn't just save us so that we could have eternity secured. We have a new hope today. We don't need sin anymore. We can choose the righteous things in this life because they glorify the one who came to save. And they're good for our heart. They're good for one another. We glorify God in this way today. You remember what Peter wrote? Um, he says that everything in life and for godliness has been provided for us in Jesus Christ. So yes, our eternal security, but also our lives. We can be righteous. We don't have to choose sin anymore. And when we do, there is one who stands in the gap, Jesus Christ the righteous. Fully man, fully God. And one day, this Jesus who is being worshipped in Revelation chapter 5, the call to worship that we already read about, he's going to come back and he is going to be glorious. He's going to have white hair like wool. He's going to have eyes of flaming fire. He's going to have a sword that comes out of his mouth. His feet are going to be burnished bronze. And the myriads of myriad of angels and all the church will be worshipping the one who sits on the throne unto the Lamb. That is Christmas. That is the hope that we have this Christmas. Store these things up in your heart and ponder them, for they are glorious. Let's pray. Father, thank you. <clears throat> thank you feel so light. God, praise you. For you are glorious and you are good. You are worthy of our whole lives. Just like the shepherds, just like Mary, they abandoned everything, they pondered everything. God, help it to be so for us as we worship the one who came, Emmanuel. And it's in his name we pray, amen.